Um, there's a handout. If you didn't get it, Noah, would you make sure everybody gets the handout? It's a privilege to be here. Kind of uh, excited about um, the topic when I heard Jeff called me and said the topic was revival. I'm a big Jonathan Edwards fan. And so um, just the idea of revival and and you understand that as you look at revival and you look at it in light of Scripture, um, there's there's clear teaching on revival. Um, places where you see um, revival fruit and things like uh, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which um, Dr. Ray Ortland spoke about yesterday, and also the, um, the picture of, of Josiah's reform, which is in 2 Kings chapter 23. These are a couple of pictures where we see revival clearly demonstrated in Scripture, but we've also seen the abuses of revival, or what we'll call fake revival. I think that's what comes to mind for most of us when the word revival is brought forward, is people trying to manufacture it through uh, means that they employ uh, just by watching and doing other things that other people are doing. And we would say that's, that's fake. And so on the, on the sheet in front of you, immediately I have to deal with this idea of the difference between real revival and fake revival. And um, I want to define revival as a real work of the Holy Spirit initiated by His power or empowered by Him. And the reason I want to define it that way is because I think we have to come to terms with the fact that there are many people trying to kind of massage revival into things just by by effort or their own work or their own power, or their own thoughts, their own their own energies. And that's not real revival. Another word I have to uh, define, and I, and I realize this, is the word growth. Because what is one of the fruits of revival? We say growth, and people immediately assume, well, you must mean numerical growth. That's not necessarily what we mean. What we do mean is spiritual growth. Um, and I think that's an important element when we look at what an what a individual who's experienced revival has, uh, has seen in their life, or a church. And I'm going to hit it from the level of the church, because I view... Uh, well, individual revival is important. Um, we're obviously made up of a body, and we represent uh, the bride of Christ, and so we're going to look at revival through that lens. I want to spend just a few minutes and talk about the need for revival. And so, um, as we think about this, these are stats I'm sure you guys have heard, and it may not be a shock to you. If you haven't heard these, I will tell you, you will find these stats posted everywhere in the Christian blogosphere as they are give arguments for why the church is in trouble, okay? <laughs> so, every year, more than 4,000 churches close their doors. I don't know if you knew that stat. Um, whereas, 1,000 new churches just start every new year. So, right there, you see there's going to be a steady decline in the number of churches that are going forward. Another stat that is often used is every year, 2.7 million church members fail, uh, fall to an inactive uh, role. This translates into the realization that people are leaving the church in mass numbers. And there were many books written uh, as of recent. Uh, there was uh, phrases that were coined. One was the nuns. Uh, and there was a lot of energy uh, stirred around that idea and, and who these people are. This is another stat that I thought was interesting. At the turn of the last century, in the 1900s, there was a ratio of 27 churches per 10,000 people. 27 churches per 10,000 people. As compared to the close of this century, in the 2000s, uh, we were at 11 churches per 10,000 people. 
So we definitely can see the number stress. There's something going on. There's desperately a need for something. What has come out of that has been a big church planting boom. I don't know if you're aware of that, but networks all over. Every denomination has been stumbling over themselves, trying to figure out ways to plant churches because the number one solution was, well, if we have a loss of churches, surely we just need to produce more churches. And I belong to a network called Acts 29, which is about churches planting churches. If you're a member of this organization, the goal is that you're going to be a church that's planting other churches. But that's not my story. My story is actually church revitalization. And as I was beginning to wrestle with what God was calling us to at First Pres, it seemed that we had a lot to learn from planters because planters, um, in a sense, take a beachhead and they're going to work really hard in a community because they have no one, maybe the five core people that started with them, and they're going to develop. And we were starting in kind of a reverse setting. We had a, uh, a, a decent uh, building. We had a decent budget, but we were seeing uh, uh, numbers drop radically in our attendance. And that was one of the things that was uh, very alarming to our church. Um, and so... Revitalization is something I think that oftentimes is missed in this strategy of what can we do about this decline of church attendance, decline of churches. Because church revitalization, I'll just be really blunt, is not sexy. Church planting is pretty sexy. Um, It's the idea that you can start fresh, start new, go anywhere, uh, do the impossible. In revitalization, you're kind of married to the old lady with warts. And uh, as you walk along together, you have to go at her cadence. You can't necessarily make your own cadence. There's things you can't change right away, although you may really hate that color pink in the sanctuary. There's nothing you can do about it initially. And things like that that you have to just understand that's just going to take time and you have to invest. So these are things I want us to begin to think about in the background of where we're going. Um... And I do believe that revitalization and revival go hand in hand. And I think we miss that sometimes, that what we're really searching for is revival in the local church. And as we see revival take place in the local church, um, we see growth. And again, I'm not just talking about numerical growth, but spiritual growth. But there's issues that arise, and those are the things I'm supposed to talk to you today about. What are the enemies of revival? So when I look at the enemies of revival, there was a particular passage that really struck me, and I would say it's the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians, what you're going to see on the back side of your sheet is five categories that I've listed 1 Corinthians as enemies of revival, how they uh, were warring with the Spirit of God. Um, and we do believe that... Um, Obviously, 1 Corinthians was written by Paul. We, uh, there is clear evidence that this 1 Corinthians isn't really the first letter. There's a missing letter out there somewhere. But this is the first one the Lord chose for us to have uh, of the inspired text. And it is what Paul is now doing in response. Now, to kind of give you a little bit of backdrop, Paul planted the church in Corinth. 
He planted it with Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, there were others that came in to help, like Timothy. He spent some time there. It planted. He invested quality time as compared to like Philippians. Uh, in the Philippian church, he was in and out very quickly. But in Corinth, he invested. He invested in the people. He invested in the culture. He invested in the church there. And when he walks away and actually continues on his normal uh, church planting routine, um, word does eventually get back to him that things in, in Corinth aren't going so well. And what he quickly discovers is that there's some real sin issues. And so he addresses this letter, 1 Corinthians, from Ephesus, and he's telling the church in Corinth, I know what you're up to, and it ain't good. And what ultimately is going to happen is you're destroying the church. And so there's five categories that he basically covers. Now, I didn't come up with these categories. You look at most theologians or most commentaries. These are the typical categories that they will put um, together as the issues that the book of uh, 1 Corinthians is dealing with. So let's just kind of walk through them. The first one is obviously in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. And so I'm going to read that one. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cyphus, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Division in the church. Division in the church is one of the most real attacks, real enemies of revival. Division. Quarreling. Fighting. Uh, it gets so bad in Corinth that they actually have lawsuits, legal lawsuits against one another. They went from the house of God into the courtroom, and now they're bringing in uh, judiciary action against one another. That's a real loving church, right? And and this is the this is the background. And Paul basically says in chapter one, the real root issue is pride. The real root issue is pride. If you jump all the way down to the very last doctrinal issue, you'll see again. I end on kind of bookend this with they have too high view of themselves. And not a high enough view of God. And that's going to be one of the central issues that always is attacking revival. When we have too high view of ourselves and not a high enough view of God. Um, when you look at these things, I want you to just kind of think in your own mind. Is this a common problem in the church today? Division? Yeah. I mean, you get, you get everything from racial uh, division to uh, generational division, to social division, economic division. And then you get the nuances within those categories of division. Well, I don't like your type of music. I don't like the way you dress. I don't like the way you, whatever, you fill in the blank. And all of a sudden, the church begins to have friction and tension and fighting. <clears throat> and let me tell you, First Pres, when I uh, came there, was a church that was already divided. It was a church that had made a commitment long ago to have a traditional service and a contemporary service. And in that, you had already set a foundation for people to kind of already be warring against each other. Now, it wasn't vocal, at least not normally, but there were always those underlying currents of complaint, those underlying currents of, of, of dissatisfaction. At the time when I came, we had an 8.30 traditional, we had a 9.30 contemporary, and we had 11 o'clock traditional. And what was interesting is when the 11 o'clock traditional that people come in, they would complain because the best parking spots were taken. 
When the 9.30 people would come, they would come, the band and them would complain because they couldn't practice because Sunday school was going on below them for one of the other groups. And so everybody's warring for position and seating in the church. And so these divisions, I'm just giving you a, a look into the window of First Press. Your churches are filled with division. Because I think the real issue is sin is the greatest enemy of revival. And at the very heart of sin is pride and selfishness. And so when we look, we want revival desperately in our churches. We want our churches to grow, again growing, meaning that spiritual growth. We have to recognize it begins with the issue of self. The issue of self. But again, Paul's not done. That was just one category. Another is the issue of unrepentant sin. This idea, first and foremost, of lack of church discipline. Do me a favor, flip over to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, we'll read just a few verses of the first 13. It says in verse 1, It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if I am present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Mark Dever um, talks quite a bit about the importance of clearing up our roles. Talks about the importance of making sure that those who are on the roles, especially in older churches. Now my church was planted in 1903. So obviously I'm not the guy who planted it, right? But 1903 is when it was planted. And you think of 2017 is where we stand today. 114 years. Can you imagine how cluttered those roles were? And one of our primary duties has been to go through and to clear off those roles. Because one of the things Mark Dever will tell you is that if you don't clear off your roles, basically you're bringing yourself into a situation where you cannot bring about change. Because others who don't even attend church can still come back and vote because they're technically still on the rolls. But there's a greater issue, Mark Dever says. You're creating an environment in your church where sin is not dealt with. Because if they're a member, we have an obligation to those sheep to lead them to truth and to call out sin. And this is exactly what is taking place in 1 Corinthians. That you have an individual who is celebrating his sexual morality. And it's a kind that even the pagans wouldn't celebrate. This man is sleeping with his father's wife. And the church is arrogant about it. Look look how loving we are. Look how tolerant we are. Look how gracious we are. And what does Paul say? Look how sinful you are. Look how wicked you are. You should more not be arrogant. And I think we need to remember that, that the sin in the church needs to be dealt with. Uh, Jesus gave us Matthew 18 for a very specific purpose. We have a process by which church discipline is to be done. If there's an offense or someone's in sin, a, a brother should go to him. If he will not listen, then you bring a witness. If they will not listen, then you bring them before the leadership of the church. And the reason eventually they're treated like an unbeliever is for what purpose? Repentance. The goal of church discipline is not just to kick people to the curb, but to see them repent. And we're not being very kind, very tolerant, or very gracious, or very loving if we're not practicing church discipline. 
And if we're not practicing church discipline, I'm not sure that you can really have revival in your church. Yet I'm seeing this consistently. Churches saying, well, we're tolerant, we're loving, we're forgiving. Why are we not growing? Um, Our church came out of a mainline denomination back in the 80s. And you watch the steady uh, decrease in numbers in that mainline denomination. They were trying to figure out, why are we not growing? Why are we not flourishing? We're embracing everything, literally. (laughs) They were embracing every type of lifestyle, every type of sin, and they were basically saying, we love you anyway. And they were trying to figure out, why are we not growing? People know what they're doing is wrong. Romans tells us that Romans 1. Inside of man, they know, right? Because it's it's God-given. This this we're made in his image, and yet and yet the the church is trying to pat people on the back and say it's okay, it's okay that you're you're in sin. It's okay, we're still going to love you anyway. People desperately want to be called out. Those who are those who God has has uh, laid upon their heart this change, this revival, and so again divisions, unrepentant sin. Notice the other types of unrepentant sin that are brought in First Corinthians: idolatry. <coughs> This is one I think we cannot just sweep under the rug, but idolatry is something that's real. Our people are, are so attra- attracted to shiny things, right? There, there's, uh, there's, there's even a, um, a study recently, and, I, and it was on the use of the phone in relationships and how it's destroying relationships. And we think about the fact that are we even talking about these idols in our church? Are we calling things out that, hey, is your phone getting in the way between you and your wife? Is, it a, is, is technology uh, hurting your family unit? You know, are we willing to call those types of things out and deal with them in the, in, in the, in the church setting? Again, we talked about sexual immorality, but also we talked about divorce. A hard topic in today's discussion. But, but Paul has no problem saying, hey, let's deal with this. Let's, let's, let's come to terms with what is God's purpose for marriage. What, what does it look like? What is, what is a, a, a biblical reason for divorce? And obviously in chapter 2, he deals with worldliness and how worldliness creeps into the church. And of course, I came out of a, a very conservative church background growing up, and, and there were a lot of do's and don'ts, a lot of things that were to be expected. And I think my generation, I'll speak as a younger generation, we sometimes go way over the other way. And some of the older people are going, shaking their heads. And, and, and now as I've gotten older and have my own kids, I'm like, I understand that now, right? I understand. And what I've learned in my church revitalization is you just don't go around and remove fences. You ask questions, why are those fences there? Because it's to guard against things such as worldliness. It's a guard against uh, the pursuit and the freedom just to be, live careless lives and not live out the holiness we're called to. And I think we have to remember that. Uh, G.I. Packer says one of the number one issues that the sin deals with today is a lack of holiness. The number one issue. Think of all the things that G.I. Packer could choose. And he says the number one issue in the church today is a lack of holiness. The church is not pursuing God. So we have divisions in the church, unrepentant sin. Another major issue that Paul's going to attack is lack of mission. One of the most famous passages is chapter 13. It's the one that's used at every wedding, right? What is love? And you, you can go to Hallmark, and even Hallmark knows that, hey, if you want to talk about love, you just grab 1 Corinthians 13, they'll plaster it on a card. Paul talks about love in a very different way. Paul talks about, yes, this is love, this is what love looks like. But if you read what love is and what love is not, it's really about mission. Love is rooted in mission, and that we are to be um, loving and gracious, but we, the way we do this is we're pulling people in the, in the way of Christ. Um, in chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, let's look at that one. 
chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Paul says this, Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you would become kings. And would you... Uh, and you would uh, and would that you did reign so that we might share and rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles at last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, and we are disrupt- disreputable. What's interesting here is that Paul is making it very clear that the calling of the leadership is humility. The, the calling of the leadership is service. In fact, Jesus taught this, right? Jesus wraps the towel around his waist and he gets before the disciples and Peter immediately, oh, no, 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 I can't let you do this. And what does Jesus say? Well, if I can't wash your feet, you can have what? No part of me. Service is to be expected by the leadership. And, and, and what's interesting is that Peter responds, well, then wash all of me. Head to toe. Jesus, well, it's not, it's not necessary. But, but the issue is service. And Jesus constantly was telling the church the importance of serving and loving one another. Another one is in chapter 3, verse 11. Flip there for a second on this lack of mission. So we've talked about a lack of love, a lack of service. Chapter 3, verse 11. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is, on, which is Jesus Christ. Today, churches are looking for anything that works. I need to grow my church. I need to get my church moving in the right direction. So we'll use whatever is necessary. And Paul says, no, the foundation needs to be Christ. The gospel, let me just make it black and white. The gospel needs to be what your church is about. People say, is that, is that realistic to think that the gospel will actually produce growth? Yes. Famous quote by Martin Luther Martin Luther was being interviewed and he was asked the question, Martin Luther, how did you bring about this great reformation? How did, how did you do this? I, I love his answer. He said, I preached the gospel and I slept. <laughs> and while I slept, the Holy Spirit applied the gospel to the church. Isn't that cool? Yeah. That Martin Luther had that kind of understanding. And I think, again, and we're looking for pragma- pragmatic things we can, handles we can do, things we can do to, to make growth happen, to make revival uh, happen in the church. And Martin Luther says, it's simple. Preach the gospel. Be gospel men. Be Christ-centered. Let that be who you are. And if that's who you are, true growth will happen. God's promised that the gospel is his power. It's his dynamite. And his dynamite will, will explode. And when it explodes, as Ray Ortland talked about yesterday, it, it will melt hearts. It will wreck you. But that's good. Broken men and women are what we seek in revival. Not people that have it all together because that's fake. That's not real. Real revival is brokenness. And so the gospel is the key to that. It's the rock of a stumbling. It's the rock of offense. Moves to another category, leadership issues. In this category, it's, it's rather interesting what, what Paul does. He talks about headship issues in chapter 11, but he again talks about the need for word-centered discipleship. And we need to talk about this a little bit, that sometimes when we think about leadership in the church, we think about how we're going to help a church grow, we're looking for businessmen. No, nothing against businessmen, okay? 
But our tendency is, if he's a successful businessman, he'll make a great leader. Because he'll somehow be able to magically look at our books and be able to just figure out the chemistry of how to bring about this change. Well, the first thing we're doing is we're doing a disservice to those individuals we're calling and putting into that position. Because they, they do not have some magic wand to make our books turn around. But we're also being disobedient to Scripture. Because those who are to lead God's flock, they need to be called and empowered, but they need to be men of the gospel. They need to be men of the word. And I think we forget this. There's an important book that is out there in the, in the bookstore, and it's, and it's called The Shepherd Leader by Tim Whitmer. And I got some time with Tim, and it was interesting to hear his story. But one of the things that Tim makes very clear is getting the right leadership in place and helping these individuals to understand they're called to be shepherds of God's flock. You don't just grab anybody, but it has to be somebody that has that calling. Somebody that clearly uh, is not a new convert. Somebody that truly can handle the word of God well. Apt to teach. This is the sense of, of who God has called to be the leader of his church. To be the shepherds of his flock. And so turn to chapter 2. Look at just 12 through 13. Now we receive not the spirit of the world but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That's the calling that Paul is calling the leadership back to. Spiritual truths, word-centered Making sure that we're, everything we're doing is driven from the Word. Now, I'm Presbyterian, and one of the ways we try to apply this to everything is something called the regulative principle in worship. We believe that what we do in worship should be, we should be an outpouring of what the Scripture says worship should be doing. That's very contradictory to what the world would say of how you, what you use worship for. Uh, and what the world would say you use worship for is to collect people. And so you need light shows and laser shows and fog machines and you need to make sure it's very warm and fuzzy and it's built for the person who's not there yet. And the regulative principle says, no, God's told us what he expects and therefore we worship him the way he wants to be worshipped. And the good news is he will draw those to him that he has called. Very contradictory. Now what's interesting is the church I was at was stumbling in that. They had a long history of understanding the regulative principle. They were Presbyterians. But they were starting to buy into, we've got to do whatever works. And let's start just, let's start, whatever works over there in, in, at Willow Creek, let's start applying that here. And, and First Pres tried countless times to just, whatever matched what other churches were doing, rather than just sticking faithfully to the word of God. So we need to be word central. So we have divisions, we have unrepentant sin, lack of mission, leadership issues, and we get to doctrinal issues. Now doctrinal issues, I already talked about worldly worship and the spiritual gifts. I don't think we need to explain. Everybody gets that one. Yeah, it's always a, a tension in the church. Lord's Supper, that they're abusing the things that God in Christ has commanded. But notice the fourth one on that list. The doctrine of resurrection was being challenged in this church. The doctrine of the resurrection, they're actually saying that there is no bodily resurrection. That's just spiritual. And Paul goes to, goes to war with them on this and says, if, if there is no resurrection, what's the result? You have no hope. 
You have no hope at all. You're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're dead spiritually. You're dead physically. There's no hope for you. And he says, if Christ has not been resurrected, we have no hope. Yet this was permeating in this church. A church that Paul had planted just a few years before. Look how quickly bad doctrine seeks, seeps into the church. How, how we must guard the doctrinal issues, the integrity issues of the church. Holiness, we talked about that one. Doctrine of Christ, we already referenced. I'm going to end with this section here on this high view of self and low view of God. Go to chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were from noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Very clearly, Paul is reminding them that you're nothing. But God is everything. You cannot do revival on your, in your own power. You cannot bring about revitalization in your own strength. And it's not going to come through, through silly schemes and, and fruit loops, right? It's going to come through the word and faithfulness. And that's what's going to bring about change. Now we'll look at this story in light of my story and First Pres' story. First Pres was a good church. Like I said, it was planted in 1903. I, I did not inherit a, a bad church. It had a long history of faithfulness. But years of attempts to bring about revitalization through their own effort and slowly getting off on the very first thing, I follow, name the fill in the blank, to a high view of self and a low view of God, began to lead this church astray gradually till we got to the place where they were trying schemes and gimmicks to bring about revitalization. The numbers really began to slide. By 2005, when I came on, you could tell there was a general panic in the church. I couldn't really figure out what it was or what the issue was because our budgets were decent, our numbers were okay, but you could just sense there wasn't something right in the church. What I quickly discovered was there was a lot of division in the church. I understand as I sat through some of the classes, there were some, some doctrinal things that needed to be straightened out. And as I got invited into the leadership meetings, I quickly understood that some of the people around the table weren't necessarily the right people to be in leadership at that time. So very clearly I was realizing there were some real concerns here at the church. So we began to think through what we could be doing. And as a young guy who's just a staff member at that time, I just put my nose to the grindstone and was trying to be faithful. And one of the things I realized was that I am a, because being Presbyterian, I'm confessional, very strongly confessional. What that means is when we say we believe the Bible, we have an understanding of what the Bible teaches based upon the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so I asked the lead pastor at the time, would you mind if I started on Sunday nights, because nobody was really using the Sunday night format, um, to just go through the Westminster Confession with the people? Oh yeah, that'd be great. At the time, they were just looking for things to be, people to be doing. If we kept up enough dust, some of it will stick. 
And so he allowed me to do that, and we were amazed how many people were coming out um, to what was already an existing Sunday night. I don't say there was nothing going on, but it wasn't flourishing, it wasn't growing. And so me and one of the other pastors just started walking through the Westminster Confession, and people were coming. They were hungry. And a lot of the older people began to put their arm around me and say, you know, it's so great to see this stuff taught again. And there was a hunger that began to be stirring. Um, gradually, we began to talk about the olders and youngers tension of our church. And we began to realize that there was a real division and how can we begin to work through that. I wish today I could stand in front of you and say, oh, it's all been figured out. No, the normal pattern and rhythm in church revitalization is two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. And that's the normal pace, that I, the cadence that I walk at First Pres. And we're still working on all of these issues. The next one of the next things was that our senior pastor had gotten cancer and stepped down and they asked me and one of the other pastors to act as interim pastors together. He's very much an executive guy. I'm very much not. And so it was a great team. He did all the work and I, I just smiled a lot. And uh, uh, it, was, it was a blessing to watch what God was doing in and through that. But one of the things we did is we decided that what we need to do is we need to really work on the leadership aspects of the church. So we started walking through a series of books. We began to rewrite our mission statement. And we didn't just do it in a setting. Presbyterians don't do anything fast. We did it through lots of meetings and lots of discussions and lots of reading. And today our mission statement reads, which I'm very excited about because it's been one that people know and we're faithful about. Uh, we're a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. We wanted our mission right there. We wanted the things we were about, the gospel first and foremost. We're a gospel church first and foremost. Our doctrinally, we're confessional, then we're Presbyterian. That's our polity. And we kind of keep those things in the right perspective. We're gospel first. And we began to talk about what can we do with this, this leadership aspect. We actually implemented... Classes that were required for anybody who wanted to be in leadership. Now, it's interesting. In my church polity, the congregation votes on who those elders will be. And every three years, an elder, uh, four, you know, three or four elders will go off. So we're constantly getting a new group of elders. And you can imagine, if you're just grabbing guys who are good businessmen, and, and, and there's no consistency with vision and mission, it's very easy to get off, t- off task. So what we started doing is reading books together. Talking about those things. But then we actually had a class. Anybody who wanted to be an elder had to take the class and they had to pass a test. We began to put gates in the way. And it took time to get all of our elders on board. And finally they got on board and they voted yes in the affirmative. And it was a unanimous vote. And when we presented that to the body, I had other people walk up to me and say, I've been an elder here for 30 years. And now you're telling me I have to take a class. And the whole time they're in their class, they're moaning and they're complaining that they got to show up for this class because supposedly they know this stuff already. And then there would be something all of a sudden that we'd say in the class, and a lot of those same men would put their arm around me on, as they exit the class say, it's one of the best things we've ever done. And it was a beautiful thing to see that leadership begin to come together in solidarity, in vision, and most importantly in doctrinal position. There was a unity of of that. One of the other aspects for First Pres that we discovered there was a huge hole was the mission. Well, we were a church that financially had good money we and we gave a lot to mission. We tried to be very faithful. One of our goals was always been uh, 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 about 25% of our income to missions. Um, at the time when I came, we were just 
about $800,000 typical annual budget. So we were giving a good amount to missions, but we really didn't have strong relationships with those missionaries. And we, and we employed so many missionaries, everybody was just getting little bits from us. And so there was no need in the sense of the missionary to come back and invest in us. Even though we had this enormous budget, we, were just, we weren't giving anybody any real depth. And so we began to talk about fewer missionaries, more money. Talking about greater expectations. We sent all of our missionaries a letter saying they had to agree to the essentials or we wouldn't continue funding them. That was a, a great battle when somebody's cousin has to be cut. Oh, wait, it was my cousin. Literally. <laughs> and uh, these things became things that we had to work through. And I realized I had to put my own cousin on that chopping block. He wasn't somebody who was regularly coming back and visiting the church. And if you're not going to do that, you're not going to get funding. And when the church leadership saw that I was willing to put my own cousin on the chop block, they were, okay, he's putting his money where his mouth is. But there were some other things we had to work through. We as a church were spending lots of money sending missionaries all over the world, but we were ignoring our own backyard. All the stats I shared with you earlier, we knew as, a, as an elder board, we said, what can we do about it? Well, we could try more programs. I said, no, I think what we need to do is be planting churches because we believe the gospel is what changes people. It's not just programs. It's not just busyness. And so we really began to look and, and analyze how we could get involved in church planting. And that's when they um, sent me away to do a study on Acts 29. And I went to California and spent some time there and, and talked to a lot of different guys in different areas of, of the of the North um, North America and just really began to think about what church planting would look like in Michigan. And one of our first churches we partnered with actually is Cleet Bontrager and Mike Kennedy's church, Restore. And I just sat down and I just wanted to learn from those guys. We have a very similar background in where we came from. I could tell we both were pushing the gospel to the forefront and we slowly began to make an investment in what they were doing. We wanted to learn, and they were willing to open up. What you'll discover with most church planners, they'll expose everything. They're not wearing much, but they'll expose everything to you, and they're willing to tell you about anything if you're just willing to listen. And we use that to say, hey, we can learn from these guys. Because one of the things about church planners is they take a beachhead, and then they have to really rally every amount of resource they can in that beachhead. And in that they cannot lose. They can't, they can't make bad decisions. Every decision they make, they have to make wise decisions. What to do with resources, people, energy, all these things. And we realized we were just throwing money around as a church, thinking it was going to kick up some dust. We were literally throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what stuck. Church planners can't do that. And we quickly realized they're, they're doing stuff we need to learn about. And so we sat at the feet of church planners. And then slowly we began to invest more and more in church planning. Um, we use our make, mature, and multiply aspect of our mission statement. We apply that also to our church planting. We make an investment. And that was what we were beginning to do. But then we began to mature planters. And as we began to mature planters, we started with internships, gradually moved to residencies. And we have a weekly cohort where we invite church planters to come in. We have speakers come in. We provide a meal. It's weekly. Sometimes it's five guys. Sometimes it's 15 guys. It just depends who's available. We showed we wanted to make an inter, uh, investment in this mission. And to this day, we're five years into it. We planted uh, three churches, one in, um, one in Dearborn. He's an SBC guy, Southern Baptist Convention guy. Uh, we planted a non-denominational church in Ann Arbor. And we planted a EPC guy, or a Presbyterian guy, um, in Detroit. 
in, in the east side of Detroit. And each one of those has been a learning uh, curve for us. We're currently working on our fourth plant, which we hope to plant in two years, and that'll be in Monroe, Michigan. It's our first rural plant. One of the things we realized is, well, I knew how to do and was learning suburb planting. I had to learn a whole lot about urban planting with our Detroit planter, and now I'm learning a whole lot about rural planting. But you don't realize about rural context because everybody figures it's, it's, it's stable, it's Christian. It's not. In Monroe specifically, it's got one of the highest sex trafficking. It's got one of the highest heroin epidemics. Um, the church ratio of people who live there who actually are faithful members attending churches is minuscule, yet everybody claims to be Christian. Everybody claims to be Christian because their grandmother was Christian. And so we're realizing there's a huge hurdle here. There's huge uh, uh, racial divisions in Monroe between the blacks and the whites. And we're trying to figure out how to best work through that. So all of those things have been things that God has led opportunities for us to be involved with. And First Pres's story of, of, of revitalization or revival has been one where we try to keep the gospel first. And we believe if we stay faithful to the gospel, whether that's in our mission of planting churches or leadership training or uh, doctrinal issues, that God is the one who brings about that revival. Um, I want to close with one story that I shared in the last hour, which I think is an important story. It's not the story of my first pres, but it is a story of a church called First Pres. And I think this really gets to the heart of the issue, and I'll just take some questions. Um, the church is called First Pres. It's in Mississippi. And um, it was a church that was very flourishing, was planted in the late 1800s, um, and had a long history there. In the 1950s, they began to see that things were changing in the South. And so they decided they were going to make uh, a change in their books. They actually made a policy that no black person was allowed to be in the sanctuary, uh, was not allowed to sit through services. They believed in segregation that strongly. And in, by the 60s, uh, when the Freedom Riders and all of that stuff was going on, there was great turbulence in Mississippi, as you probably well know if you just know your history. There happened to be a Greyhound station that was just on the corner right across the street from this particular church. The Freedom Riders got off the bus and they were attacked. The church purposely locked its doors so that nobody could go there for refuge. This continued in this church's history, but as it continued, by the 70s, the church really began to decline in number. They had a huge facility, but they weren't growing. And they were having to make cuts, and they were having to make changes, but they couldn't figure out why. So about 1970, they started their first real efforts to begin revitalization. They did what every church does. They began to think about pragmatic things and began to apply those things. And things were sort working. Things weren't clicking. By 1980, they were in a position where they realized that they probably needed to do something a little more drastic, so they decided what some churches do, we're going to start a preschool. And if we start a preschool, day school, then surely that'll bring young families and that'll rejuvenate the church. Again, by 19, mid-1980s, this is what they made. A, a there was a big discussion, big debate over amongst their members. Now again, there's not many members. I think there was about 70 at this time. 70 to 80. And the, decision, the question was, what do we do if a black person wants to put their child in our preschool? Guys, this is 1980s. And the racism is still there in this church. 
By the 1990s, they had kept trying, and eventually they had to sell out their property. Uh, the area was changing, and they sold to a black pastor who got a hold of the building, and actually it flourished. He actually put an addition on the building, and they watched that and just kind of dumbfounded, why is he growing and we're not? The next 20 years, they keep trying revitalization effort after revitalization effort to the point where they're getting down to just the bare bones, about 20, 25 people. And the pastor uh, decides that he just can't take this church anymore in the sense that he can't help it. He's tried things, isn't working, so he retires. They go for a long period of an interim pastor, and eventually there is a pastor that they desire to call. The pastor comes. Now we're about 2007, 2008. And he walks in, and he quickly surveys the territory. He does what I was basically told to do in seminary, that when you take a church, one of the first things you need to do is go visit the local gas station. You need to ask them about the church. Pretend you don't know the church. Just ask what, you know, where the church is, A, do they know where it's at, B, what reputation it has. What he heard from the people of that community was, oh yeah, that's the church that doesn't let black people in. This is 2007 in the South, and that church is still identified as the church that doesn't let black people in. He realized, we have a sin issue. He did not say we have an image problem. He said we have a sin issue. He took the church on a two-year journey looking at the Word of God and looking at the, how, what they're to do with sin. The church began to deal with the sin. They finally held a vote to publicly repent of the sins of the past. And one of the things that's very ironic about this is that a lot of the people who eventually signed that apology, that, that, uh, that, that confession, were never even members there until this guy came. But by joining that congregation, they too were now marred by the heritage of that sinful past. That church confessed their sin, and now I, I'm happy to say they're a, they a growing and, and, and church moving in the right direction. You look at a church like that, what was the root sin? Racism. But what was it really? They thought too highly of themselves that they were able to look down on others, right? They didn't have a gospel perspective of what they were called to be and who they were called to be. And so I think when we really come to this issue of revitalization, revival, yes, we're definitely going to say that the, the enemies of revival are sin. But as we look at it, we really have to begin to say, and it starts with me. James tells us the Bible is a mirror we need to hold up, and we need not walk away unchanged. We need to make sure that we're really analyzing our own struggles, our own And it begins that way. The gospel begins in one person and begins to manifest itself as that one person lives on mission, proclaiming the truth. And that's how you see revitalization really take root. And and I think that's true of the story of the church in in Mississippi. It's definitely true of of the story of of First President Trenton. And I think it's true of many of your churches as well, that the real change begins to happen when there's real brokenness and real repentance. Mm -hmm. So we got a couple minutes. I'm just going to take questions, or if you guys got things you want to add. Just curious, did the black folk come back to church? No, actually, they're working really hard now because when they sold their property, now they're in a place that's predominantly white. 
And so now they're and I don't think the solution is to uh, bust people in so that you're diverse. I think you want to reflect your the area you're at. But they are trying to make sure that they're linking with other churches that are black to show that they have a uh, partnership in the gospel with them. Mm-hmm. And so they're purposely trying to make build bridges of relationship. So yeah. Yeah. You came into first press. You saw some of the changes that needed to be made. Would you have another brother there that you could bounce your ideas off of and kind of move forward together? Even if, if mostly, probably in prayer. Yeah. Um, no, no. I was surrounded by um, by some good people who saw it. One, a couple of things that are important in the story of First Pres is First Pres had to come to one of its lowest points. I don't think we reached the lowest point, but we came to one of the lowest points. Some very prominent families finally walked away from the church, and the church went, "Oh my goodness! Now that they're gone, the bottom's going to fall out because who's going to stay?" And that brought an attitude of. What can we do? They were, they were at that point, what can, we'll do whatever we got to do, but what can we do? Um, I think I was blessed. I'm the 20th lead pastor of that church. I was blessed by the pastors who, who stood in before me. Now, obviously, some of them maybe weren't as doctrinal or they maybe brought some more pragmatic things in. But one thing that remained true is our people had a high view of the Word of God. Maybe they didn't know it. Maybe it wasn't taught to them well or whatever you want to say. But I would say they had a high view of God. So I think that was a blessing. There were people there that understood that the gospel is what matters. I also came at a time when there was the gospel boom. Gospel Coalition came out. Uh, men like uh, Piper had been doing their work for a long time. <coughs> Mark Dever. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the byproduct of the labor of a whole Christian community. And that's the excitement that I have. And I, I'm not alone because... People in our church could listen to all these guys on podcasts. So even though maybe they weren't getting it in their local body, they were getting good doctrine in other places. There was also the executive pastor there that I believe is he's one of my best friends in the sense of co-laborers. Where he went to Dallas, I went to RTS. We have some theological nuances that are different, but together in partnership, he was one of my greatest supporters and encouragers about. The, the willingness to make these changes. At times, I was probably slower. I'm the younger guy. I, he's been there 30 years. I was sometimes slower than him on making changes. I'll give you an example. Um, <clears throat> and I don't. And I'm just going to use this example. I'm not saying this is right for every church, but for us, one of the things that was happening was if you walked in, if you if you weren't if you had a baseball cap on or whatever, people would literally tell you take that baseball cap off. There was kind of a stiffness to the to the church. And I'm all about, hey, yeah, reverence and, and making sure God is, is honored. But we're in an area that's very non-Christian. There's just, the people are now generationally growing up. They don't even know when they walk into church what church is, how to dress, what to act like. And so we really had to work through that. And one of those is an example of offering. We passed the offering plate, which typically most churches do. We had made a theological decision as well as a pragmatic decision, I think it, it was tied together, that what are, what cultural decision, what are we saying when we pass the offering plate in front of people that have never attended church? And so we looked in scripture and says, is this required? Come back to my regulative principle. And what we discovered, no, because Jesus talked about the woman who went to the offering box and put her money in and used her as an illustration. So what we did is we decided we were going to put an offering box in, but I was slow on that. That was not my push. That was my 
um, partner's bush. And he, one day I walk in, the offering box is there, and I'm like, oh my goodness. We're going to hear all kinds of people complaining. And we didn't. And he just really went, and he took it on his old shoulders to look. I've been here with you guys 35 years. I believe this is an important thing because the culture has changed around us. These people walking in think already all we want is their money. We need to teach them it's about giving to God, and they need to give out of a willing heart. This shows that we're not pushing a plate in front of them. We're putting a box there. We make sure everybody knows it's there. Uh, trust me, my session would be upset if we didn't because we got to pay bills. But there is a sense we had to make some of those changes. So I had help like that. Uh, I think outside, big Christian community, inside individuals who were being encouraged through podcasts and things like that. But then obviously my partner, um, the executive pastor there, was a huge help in, in bringing out the changes that were made. Yep. I noticed that you mentioned both Piper and Dever, and they're both Baptist. Does that concern you? I'm joking. <laughs> um, here's my, here's my uh, real question. Um, so Ray Ortland is Presbyterian. <laughs> <'cause> anybody? <laughs> I, I got, I got, we got our Sherman tank out there. So. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, no. My real question is: Have you seen an uh, impact, um, uh, sort of, in other ways in people, in excitement through? Your church is involved with church planning. Have you seen that trickle down to missional engagement with your own people and yeah. people excited about church? Thank you, Kyle. Yeah. We, we've tried. So some of the things we learned about church planning was the importance of getting involved in the neighborhood. We really went from, we still have strong Bible studies. I'm teaching a systematic theologies class. We're using Charles Hodge and uh, uh, John Calvin for women. It's called Her Theology Matters. I have 38 women in this class. And they, and it's like a, se- a seminary level class. I'm using my seminary notes. We're just walking through it. Three pods, uh, three, three, uh, 12 week sections. And so we still do, we take Bible, uh, Bible study very serious. But one of the things we did is we said, we need to do something that's going to mix things up because we have a traditional and a contemporary. We're already divided by age. So what we did is we've created missional communities. And in these missional communities, one of our goals was the fellowship one with another. And one of it is to really aim on the diversity within our own church. So we did it by geographic location. If you live in Allen Park, you live in Wyandotte, you live in Trenton, these are the groups we're really encouraging you to go to. Now, we won't kick your butt if you choose to go to another, but we're really encouraging you to do that because it's going to be create diversity. You're going to meet people you wouldn't normally meet. But when those groups got together, we told them because it's geographical, now you have a responsibility to the neighborhoods in your area. They, they, they uh, partnered with schools, they've partnered, uh, we did block parties, they've done all kinds of little things like that. And it's it's still rough, we're still learning, we're like everybody else's missional communities, we're stumbling all over ourselves. But that was one. The other thing I learned from church planners is to get involved in the community itself. My son plays football, and so I've invested time. I now coach Little League football. I'm on the board. Um, it was funny, when I first went, I was just helping. They needed somebody to be a water boy. I volunteered, I'll be a water boy. And I went from water boy, hey, would you take care of the, the uh, equipment shed? Yeah, I'll, I'll take care of the equipment shed. And one day, I started putting all the pads out, and one of the coaches comes up to me, what are you trying to do, get on the board? Nobody puts the pads out. I'm like, no, I'm just trying to help. And I kind of laughed inside. I said, if you know who I was and all the board meetings I got to sit through, the last thing I want to do is start another board meeting. <laughs> it was that same coach who came to me later and said, hey, we all want you to be on the board. Would you be willing to do that? So now they gave me an invitation. Now from that, I just I didn't tell everybody I was a pastor. And it was funny because a lot of the coaches would be cussing around me. And then all of a sudden they found I was a pastor. One of them comes head down. Why didn't you tell me you're a pastor? I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, 
And <laughs> it's funny, but now from that, we've had um, at least three families that have allowed us to take their kids to our summer camp. Two of those three families uh, attend our church semi-regularly. Um, all because I learned from church planners, you got to get involved in the community. You can't just sit in your ivory tower and wonder why you're preaching these great sermons, but nobody's coming. You have to be involved and engaged in the community. Okay, so like the block parties, I listening to Piper and all these different ones. Mark Devers will say, what you win them with, you have to keep them with. You know, I, I, I've always had a hard time with a block party. Yeah, the tension of that, right? A block party or... or Marshmallows from a helicopter, or what are the, yep, yep, the yep. things that they do? We wouldn't do marshmallows from a helicopter. It's pretty expensive, uh, but no, but no. Really, on the block party, here's the thing that I would say about that: we have to, we have to cultivate the ground. How do you cultivate the ground? You build relationships. Maybe it's not a block party, but do you know your neighbors? Have your neighbors been over to your house for dinner? When we say block party, was one of those situations happened where the, the area was having a block party? So one of our mission groups said, what can we do to bless this group, that's, this block that's having a block party? And they provided some of the food or something. It was We invested in what they were already doing to show we care about you. Now as we show we care about you, we have the opportunity for, for those conversations to begin to move. I do agree what you win them with, you win them to, or however that's said, and, and you want to be careful, but you can't just go along and, and just throw seed on the ground and wonder why it's not, it's not sticking in the ground. Well, you haven't cultivated the ground at all. You're just, it's hitting the hard ground and bouncing off because we're like that church, Jackson, Mississippi, that basically everybody says, oh, that's the church that they don't care about us. They don't care about our community. They haven't taken time to till the ground. I want to be careful what I'm saying. I'm not saying get so involved in social gospel, but I don't think anybody in this room is going to fall into that category. <laughs> if I was at a, another church speaking on that, a different I would different conference. I would be the other way. I go to Acts 29 conferences, and sometimes I speak, and let's be very honest, some of the guys in those, in those contexts aren't just like me or you. And theologically, I'm like, hey, guys, you might really want to be more careful <laughs> about A, B, C, and D. With you guys, I'm going to say there's nothing wrong with sticking that blade in the ground and cultivating that soil. Because if we really want the gospel um, to at least have the opportunity to go in the soil, we need to spend time investing in relationships. Jesus did that. I I know this is overused, but it needs to be reminded. Jesus hung out with prostitutes. Jesus hung out with drunkards. Jesus hung out with tax collectors. Jesus hung out with revolutionaries. And I know that the argument always, well, we're not Jesus. You're right. I'm not going to go to a uh, strip club to pass out gospel tracts. That would be stupid. But I am to reach my neighbor next door. And I need to do things that find common ground. So if he wants to go bowling or he wants to uh, one night come over and play board games or whatever it is, watch the NFL football game or whatever, I'm going to make sure that that's an opportunity I'm, I'm doing to cultivate that. Because I think sometimes we sit back in our churches and we still we, we argue against seeker mentality. We still have a come and see approach. We do all of our programs in here. I'll give you one more case and I'll get out of here because I know you guys got out of here. Um, we we had some ladies come to us and say we want to start a soccer program for uh, our, our kids. They wanted to call it Kingdom Kids. It was all based to focus just on the kids in our church. And I said, guys, why are we focusing just on the kids in our church? Why don't we seize the opportunity to focus on the kids in our community? And they all kind of looked at me like a little strange. 
And I said, if we if we can do this, it just so happened that's when the economy tanked. We offered $15 for the kids to come and play. The only reason I charged them anything was I had to pay for those T-shirts and I had to pay for goals and balls. And so we charged $15. I literally had women and moms and dads in the community crying on my shoulder telling me I thought my kid wasn't going to be able to play soccer this year. And this provided that opportunity. We do not push gospel heavy. At it's not a it's not a bait and switch. We pray before we play. They know we're a church that operates it. We we try to fill it with coaches from our church, and we tell everybody, parents who are watching, your job is to be missional. Your job is to build relationships with those in the community. And if, and if we use this as an opportunity, invite them to your missional community. Invite them to invite them to your house for dinner. Do that. I'd love to say we have great success. Our people are still learning how to be missional. They're still struggling. But we've got to we've got to engage with the culture.